Hi, this is Barrett Hoffman, Chief Product Officer at Sisu, and you're listening to Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. And today I have Barrett Hoffman on the line, the Chief Product Officer at Sisu. How are you, Barrett? Doing great and excited to be here. Thanks, Brian. Excellent, excellent. So you guys have an intelligence product, a business intelligence, analytics software application. And I thought your profile looked interesting and you were referred to me by a past guest we had on the show, which is often how I find my current guests. So welcome. It's really nice to have you here. And we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the design product relationships, specifically in the context of analytics, because a lot of places that build analytics solutions in-house, like enterprise teams, don't typically have either product management thinking or design in those roles. There's dashboard and UI developers and analysts and, and, and data scientists. And so on the software side of the world, it's very normal for us to have product management and design at the table. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. But the first thing I want to ask you about when we did our screening call, you said something you said to ask you about the Bebop Ivory Tower. <laughs> what is the Bebop? It's a great name, by the way. I'm like, I'm going to write a jazz composition called that. But <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So what I was referencing there, so Bebop was a startup that I was at almost 10 years ago now. Jesus, time flies. But this was a startup that eventually got acquired by Google in 2015, but spent several years there before the acquisition. And when we were chatting and talking a little bit about the importance of design thinking and, and really getting close to your user whenever you're building a product, I immediately went to Bebop because that's where I learned, I would say in some ways the hard way, uh, about the importance of really grounding everything you do in the user and, and spending that time up front. And you know, when I mentioned the the kind of ivory tower design experience at, at Bebop, I would say that was kind of where we started mistakenly, was a lot of what we were building, we were basing off of our own personal experiences. And, and that's what I call kind of the, the, you know, sitting in isolated in an ivory tower, just kind of thinking, well, wouldn't it be cool if, and, you know, let's go build XYZ because we personally think it would be nice. And, and that's how we personally would have wanted it to work. But so often that leads you really astray. And that led to, at, at Bebop, us doing several candidly rebuilds almost of the product that we were building. And so that's why I say I kind of learned the hard way, the importance of spending that time with customers up front and really digging in to understand what problems are most challenging and difficult for them, because those are the problems to solve, not the ones that you as a product manager or as a designer think are going to be the most important. And it just, you know, is a lesson I carry forward with me in terms of how I approach anything I'm going to work on now. You know, the sooner I can get it in front of users, the sooner I can get feedback and really validate or invalidate my assumptions, the better, because they're probably going to tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. 
as I recall, you're fairly new in, in your current role as chief product officer here at, at CISU. How has that translation to your current role happened, especially in, in the kind of data analytics space where I think design is still fairly new, the idea of product management and the AI space uh, in the enterprise is very is also very new. How does that apply here? Was it were you glomming on something from the traditional software world that that didn't neatly fit or it did slide in really easily? Like, tell me how you guys do it. Yeah, bake the cake. Absolutely. So this was actually a big part of you know, a question, I guess, that was a big part of my decision whether to join CSU. I spent a lot of time during the interview process talking with Peter, our, our CEO and founder, and really trying to suss out whether he saw design and product experience as critically strategic to the company's success. Because at the end of the day, that's, I think, the style and brand of product thinking and, and product leadership that I bring is going to be, you know, I my consistent theme for me in my career has been gravitating towards really complex underlying problems and wanting to build really simple, intuitive solutions for them. And so there's, you know, as we just started talking about kind of an approach and a philosophy that I believe in, in order to make that happen, which is very grounded in the user. It's very grounded in doing that, whether it's conceptual inquiry or the users all the way through concept testing, all the way through actual usability testing, but it's an intensive process to, you know, a lot of people like to pay lip service to, we want to build an intuitive experience and, you know, we want to be a design first or, you know, design forward company, but it requires quite a bit of investment in terms of people and time. And so that was something I share all of that to say, it was something that for any role that I was going to take, I wanted to make sure that from the CEO and just shared values across the leadership team that we all fundamentally believe design and, and the product experience that we were building was going to be critical to our success. And that's something that I, I'm happy to say both came through in the interview process with Peter and has stayed true since joining. So I joined about a year and a half ago. And, you know, he, so Peter's background, he's an academic background incredible, incredible experience and, and trajectory as a tenured professor at Stanford. And when he decided to start CSU and has actually subsequently left Stanford, the reason was because he saw a big opportunity to have more impact on the world by delivering and, and developing a product that companies could use in their day-to-day -to, -day to actually get more actionable insights from their data rather than just kind of researching how might we or, or kind of even being embedded in various research efforts with companies. And so I think he really recognized the importance of to make that, to realize that impact and make that generally accessible and, and available to more and more people, the product experience and making it intuitive and something that not just, you know, super sophisticated statisticians could understand, but something that those of us who are working in various business functions and trying to make data-driven decisions, but maybe don't have the extremely sophisticated capabilities around data science, or at least are bottlenecked on that, right? Because every company, even if you have dedicated analysts and data scientists or 
almost inevitably bottlenecked. And so I think long way of saying he really understood and, and saw the importance of building an intuitive experience to help broaden and maximize our impact. And that has really played out. I'd say probably one of the biggest tests of that was shortly after joining, I pushed pretty hard for us to do a, an entire redesign of the product because I felt very strongly that we didn't have the right mental model and kind of foundation to build on. And that was evidenced, again, this wasn't just my opinion, this was evidenced by going and talking to customers and doing some of that user research and trying to dig into how they were thinking about things. And, you know, I think that was, like I said, a, a big test was, are we, were we going to put in the six, nine, you know, sometimes it can even be a 12 month cycle to fundamentally rebuild this product because that's how much we value getting the foundation and user mental model, right? And we did. And, and I'm really happy that it's played out. That's great. I was going to ask you to respond to the hypothetically, if Pete was Peter, correct? Yes. if the response is that Barrett, that sounds very expensive and slow. What you want to do? T tell me why it's tell me why it's worth it for us to go do that. Yeah. Well, I think the probably the most important thing I would say is that's a point where I should not and cannot be relying on my opinion exclusively to make that argument, right? It has to be grounded in what have we seen, heard, learned from either current customers or the prospects we talk to that gives us conviction we don't have it right. And so that was a big part of, of the first few months was really digging in and, and trying to understand that, get the evidence, not just to convince Peter, but candidly to develop my own conviction, right? Because right. Yeah. it is a big investment. You know, if yeah. I guess my response to that question would be, you're absolutely right. It is a big investment. It, we shouldn't take it lightly. But if we've really done our homework, then we can develop, I think, enough conviction either way to say it's the right bet to place or it's not. And, and in this case, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I see people struggling with that you know go through my training and stuff like this especially coming from uh, the technical side the data side is there's a tendency to look at the building of data products whether they're internal solutions or software or what what have you it's look at all the available data and then think about how many screens we need and which visualizations and then tooling around that stuff and then whatever that is at the end is the that's the design and we don't call it design because those are dashboard developers or whatever, but that's basically the approach. And, you know, as a designer and, and someone that, and, and product thinker, for me, it's all about the, the problem finding is almost more important than the solutioning because the solutioning gets so easy when you really understand the need. It's not hard to come up with good solutions when the need, the need is so clear, which you can only get through conversation, inquiry, shadowing, all these exercises. So I'm curious, you had mentioned you had a design leader in your past that taught you a bit about problem framing. So I was wondering if you could tell me kind of what was the before Barrett and what was the after Barrett of that? And maybe it wasn't just this one person that helped you out, but what changed in your thinking, like help paint that picture of before after around that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the biggest difference, and you kind of hit on this, is the percent of time you spend on understanding the problem as opposed to thinking about the solution. I would say the before state, it was diving into the solution. 
and kind of assuming that I already understood the problem or glossing over that in some sense. And then, you know, very quickly, because I think that's that can actually sometimes feel very tempting because it's the fun part. You're ideating, you're coming up with all these different solutions. And to your point, the, the end result then is a million different fill in the blanks, right? In a million different dashboards, yeah. a million different yeah. ways of doing something. Outputs, Outputs exactly. <laughs> so, so the biggest delta is just how much time we spend. And it's, I have now come to think of my job as probably 80% are we solving the right problem? And there's a great visual that's always in my mind for this process, which folks will refer to as kind of the double diamond process, which is, you know, if you think about the life cycle of defining or designing a, a project or something you're working on, there's this first stage up front, which is all about the problem context. And that's kind of the first diamond in this process. So again, it's actually important to take time to diverge on what problems could we solve, right? There's so many different problems we could solve. We need to probably understand the landscape of those problems before we can converge on what's the right problem to solve. And I call that first diamond is basically where we are figuring out, are we designing the right thing, right? Have we found the right problem to solve? It's only once we've aligned on that, that we actually then can move into how do we design the thing right? And that's your solution context, right? And again, that's the point at which you can go back and your second diamond, diverge again on all the different solutions, ideate around those and converge on the right solution. But like I said, I think the biggest delta for me has been how much time I spend on that upfront problem context. And interestingly, that kind of double diamond, the, I guess the last part of it is then actually you build, you iterate, or you build, you ship, you learn, and you iterate. You're right back to what problem do we need to solve based on, on what we ship. So we actually now at CISU map our internal project review meetings, so our kind of cross-functional, let's check in on how a project's going. We map those to the context of that double diamond process. And we say, you know, okay, is this a project review meeting number one, which is all about the context? We're not even going to talk about a single solution in this meeting. We're literally just going to talk about what problem are we solving? And that's, that's I think, been the biggest change. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about, is there anything unique about designing for decision making, which I'm not sure in CSU whether or not a user actually takes action on a decision within your tool such that feedback is somehow recorded or whether or not it's like I, you know, I leave your app and I go elsewhere in my job and I then take action on this thing. I'm going to buy more widgets because it, you guys told me I should and I believed the analysis I got. Can you talk to me about this act of designing for decisioning? Where does it break down? Have you learned anything about how to do it better that's maybe not the same as traditional software development? where it's different with data products, especially when nothing is going to tell you the perfect future, right? You absolutely should do this. And we're 100% certain, you know, unless you're not machine learning and it's, I mean, there's always even, that's all probable probability still anyways, but tell me about that. Uh, is there something you can share there that's different about designing for decision-making? Yeah. Well, there's two things that you said that, that I want to underline and I think are probably the biggest takeaways for me. First is you said designing for decision-making. And that is 
it sounds simple, but that's one of the most fundamental things is we were in a space that people, it's a crowded space and people typically call data analytics, right? Or AI analytics, et cetera. It's, and if you just, again, it's nuanced and it's just in the way we're speaking, but it matters. When you hear people saying you're building a data analytics tool, that's really different than saying you're building an engine or a platform to make decisions, right? Because, and this is where I actually will say to, to even candidates when I'm interviewing them, if all we end up doing is building an analytics tool, we will have failed. The world doesn't need another analytics tool. There's a million and one analytics tools out there. And again, I think that would be such a missed opportunity. And yes, we could apply, you know, a little bit smarter, you know, a little bit smarter ML to the analytics engine or more scalability. And all of those things need to happen. But I think the mistake would be thinking that we just are building for the act of actually doing the analysis. Where the gap is, and, and we kind of call this the decision gap, right? The gap is not just about, can you do the analysis? But it's actually, how do we go from analysis to decision, which at the end of the day is a multi-step, multi-user workflow. And if you think about traditional BI tools and dashboarding tools and really any analytics tools out there, they weren't fundamentally designed for a workflow. They weren't fundamentally designed for collaboration around consuming those insights and iterating, right? The, the second part of what you said that I wanted to make sure we underline is that decision-making is a human process. There's no world in which you're going to spit out an answer and say, just go do it. And people are either going to trust it or it's just, there's software is always going to be missing the rich context and expertise that humans have about their business and, and the context in which they're making the decision. So what that says to me is inherently decision-making is also going to be an iterative process. We're going to ask the question, we're going to find an answer that might prompt another question and different types of questions, right? We're going to ask what questions, what happened to a metric? That's going to prompt a why question. Well, why did it happen? That's going to prompt maybe another what question. Well, I found this interesting driver. Let me go now and ask, well, what happened to that driver over a longer window of time? And you'll kind of jump back and forth between that and eventually maybe ask a now what question. To your point, how should I think about if I took this action, what would the impact be? Or even executing that action. So I think the key here is saying, again, iterative workflow where the end goal is decision. The end goal is not analysis output. And acknowledging that it is a human process. And what I think technology can do is it can automate and accelerate a lot of the manual repetitive steps in the analysis that are taking up a bunch of time today. And especially as data is getting exponentially more complex and multidimensional, the technology can help you hone in on where out of that incredibly complex world of all the different things I could be looking at where are the most important things? How do I prioritize my time? How do I focus? But then it's that human who's going to be part of doing the iterating, part of doing the, let me think about this in the context of our business. Let me ask this next follow-up. And then ultimately executing the decision. 
has there been any in the process of maybe going through that redesign you talked about or even just part of your regular diet of shipping or doing testing and this kind of thing where you've learned hey you know our assumption about this was totally wrong you know when we got xyz in front of somebody here's what we learned particularly around this decision making probably the biggest thing that sticks out to me is when i joined CSU and and i i absolutely bought into this kind of directive as well, we said we were really focused on answering these why questions. So I mentioned before, there's kind of what questions about what happened to your metric and then there's why, which we felt there's a big gap in the market for helping answer why and helping dig in. And when I say answer why, what I mean is being able to look at all the different subgroups in a data set that could be influencing or impacting metric performance and pulling out the ones that actually had statistically significant impact on how the metrics performing or how it changed over time. And that's a really, it is a really important uh, step that I think has been underserved. And candidly, that's where CSU's initial traction in the market has come from and helping fill that gap around why. Because at most companies, it's a very manual process of analysts going in and kind of hypothesizing, like, I think it could be this, let me check, rather than saying, out of all the hundreds of millions or even billions of combinations, tell me which ones actually mattered. So that's kind of the, the bread and butter of where CSU started. Now, what I think we assumed that was wrong, we kind of said, we're not going to build dashboards. We're not going to do the, the simple what questions. We're not the kind of traditional dashboards and some of those what questions. They can be done in other tools. And we really want to focus on this why. And what has been really interesting is we actually heard customers and, and got feedback that they were coming into CSU to answer that why question because they couldn't do it in their existing BI. But it was really painful because they're start to have to go back and forth, right? They're starting in a dashboard to say even what why question should I even be looking at? They're jumping into CSU to answer it. And then on the other end of that, they're saying, I found something in CSU. Now I want to create a simple visualization to be able to communicate it to the rest of my business. And so there was this really, again, inefficient having to jump between two different worlds and two different tools. And we ended up, I guess, as a result of that insight saying, we're going to go back on this stance of like, we're not answering what questions and we're not allowing any like basic visualizations or dashboards, because again, the reason it was not to say, let's go and build the capability to create a stack bar chart just because every BI tool has it. It was because we're seeing customers have that need on either side of what they're already doing in CSU. And so that's kind of what drew us into, you know, and, and we actually have just recently launched that capability to pair those kind of exploratory what questions and creating some of the visualizations around those to pair that. And then, you know, I think what's really exciting is and powerful is to be able to then go from one of those immediately kick off your why question, which is where CC really differentiates. And th those handoffs, I think, become really powerful. So that's an example where, like I said, the we almost had the opposite stance up front of we're not going to build this. And we since changed that and spent about two quarters really investing in building a V1 of that capability because it was clear that it was so essential to the workflow that our users 
data to, to follow. So at the, if I followed this correctly, then the, the what part of the question is not so much supported and you're really kind of doubled down on the why part. Is that correct? Yeah, like we, well, that's, the why. that's very much where we started. But now what I was saying is that we've uh -huh. recently launched into that more what capability because we are seeing that handoff oh, is so okay. critical in the workflow. And the, ex the expression of that experience is, is different exactly. than it was originally? Yeah, it, was, it was not even something oh, okay. that we planned on addressing initially, right? We didn't think oh, okay. that that was an important part, yeah, that yeah. it could be served in other capabilities, you know, other tools and other capabilities. Right. Okay. I think I understand now. So, and I wanted, this actually dovetails in my next question because one of the things, one of my first analytics software clients, the CEO called it the metrics toilet. And I think it was a great, our product is a metrics toilet. Anything you want to see divided by anything this way, compare anything you want, any chart type, anything. And then that way they can solve every problem they will ever have without ever calling us. Right. That's the theory. How do you control for this as a product manager when you know that you don't have the entire scope of all the problems when you're building a tool that is used to design solutions to these questions, you don't know all the questions, all the industries, all the types of users, all of that, all the data, all the fields, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So some of this you have to abstract out, like this is a class of question. So like, yeah, it's customer data, but it could be vendor data. So let's not lock in customer. We need to give them a field, which lets them select from the vendor table instead of the whatever table. But now you're on this, now this can easily get out of control, right? Well, maybe they like to join on inventory data as well as customer order data, just in case, because I can theoretically think of this thing and on and on and on and on. How do you control for reduction of scope to focus narrowly on quality versus making sure you're not too constrictive where you've like, you know, doubled down on one class of problems so far, but it's not really a platform now. It's very customized to a very specific thing. Like that's, yeah. how do you balance the that? The short answer is it's hard and we're figuring out it, figuring it out. So I'm not going to pretend yeah. that, that I've got, you know, magic answer, answer to that. I think what you're talking yeah. about is we think of it in, in the product as this explicitly a, a metric layer, a metrics layer, right? Where the business is actually doing some of that upfront. And it's probably going to be an analytics engineer or an analyst of types who's doing some of that upfront modeling to reflect the business mm -hmm. logic and, and say, here's how we define this metric and whatnot. And to your point, uh, there's, I mean, there's just rat holes upon rat holes of, you know, <laughs> of, of edge cases yeah. and things that you can design for with that. So, you know, our approach and, and I guess, you know, let's let's circle back in a year or two and see how this works. But our approach here is, you know, it's I know I, I'm probably being negative here and redundant, but it, it's coming back to that, you know, design thinking process and getting things in front of users, testing. I think the most this is a good example where having a really clear hypothesis going in that actually takes maybe a more conservative stance. I found that can actually be a really good for this type of problem where you could think of, again, every edge case you could possibly design for. If you start with something where you're intentionally saying, we're not solving XYZ edge cases, we're not, and sure. let's see. And look, users are going to tell you they need to do it, right? They're going to tell you, I, I absolutely need to be able to do that. 
But sure. when you actually put it in front of them, yeah. they're going to have, and, and actually maybe ship a, a V0 or, or a beta that doesn't have that capability, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to say, they're going to continue to pound the table and say, this is super painful. I absolutely need it. And then you know they really need it. <laughs> or it's never going to come up again. Mm. And you're going to realize that maybe they thought they needed yeah. it and, and they didn't. And so that's where I think in this ongoing battle that I think is true for sure in, in data and analytics and, and especially at this kind of data modeling metric layer, but it's true in a lot of enterprise software contexts where there's this tension of, I want a simple intuitive experience, but I also want to be able to configure and customize till the cows come in. I think the best way to test that is starting simpler, shipping that simpler thing, and then seeing where people truly push back versus where maybe they thought they needed something that in reality, maybe isn't quite as, as critical as they thought. Sure, sure. I sometimes call those anti-personas or anti-goals, and they're used as anchors to help us know, especially when you know you have your, what I call outer ring stakeholders who are not maybe in the day-to-day, -day, but they drop in. You have to give that context so that they don't immediately derail everything because they don't know what you're not doing. And that, we, that which means we've actually thought about this and we've declared we're not working on that type of problem in order to keep our scope small, to focus on a need. It can be really powerful. And you, it's as compared to what, right? Like we're doing this compared to what? Yep. Not that stuff is what it's compared to. So the, I, I love that, that, that you, you mentioned that. And I wanted to actually plug, a, I'm going to plug a book I haven't read, but I heard the author interview, which is great. And it's called Subtract the Untapped Science of Less. And it's basically about the idea of, you know, when we talk to people about solving problems and you give, you know, people in these studies, how would you solve this situation? You know, nine out of 10 people, it's they would add something to whatever it is that you're making to make it better. And so often we forget, and designers, especially when we think about modernism and all this, it was very much about what can I take away that will help it make it better? And I think this gets lost in the tendency with data when you think about how much we're collecting and the scale of it, that adding it is always gonna make it better. And it doesn't make it better all the time. It can slow shit down and it can cause noise. It can make people ask even more questions when in reality, like the goal here is to make a decision. It's never gonna be a perfect decision. Let's accelerate the decision-making so that there's a learning cycle that happens better. Totally. You know, next, next step. No, I, I love, I love the way you <laughs> maybe said preaching to the choir here, book. but I've also not read it, but it sounds great. You know, you know I joke sometimes, probably the most important part of my job is saying no, right? Or, or pulling pulling things back. And yeah, yeah so I'll, I'll definitely check out that book. It sounds yeah. great. Is there one, one particular thing that you found is most difficult about designing a decision support application or tool? What, what's the hard, what's the hardest thing there and any tips on how either you're currently tackling it or just any findings? that you might want to share? One thing that popped into my mind right away, and I, I don't know if this is the hardest, but it was something that, like I said, as you were asking the question popped into my head, is trying to decide when to get specialized. And if so, and what I mean by specialized is, you know, there's a world where you could go and create a bunch of very like industry specific or very function specific types of experiences, right? We could say, we're going to, tailor and deliver a sisu for 
fill in the blank industry or for fill in the blank function. And that is something that I'm constantly thinking about and constantly finding myself. And again, in full transparency, I'll say, let's circle back in a couple of years and see if this is the right decision. But what I'm finding myself doing right now is really trying to resist the urge to get industry specific or metric specific in any of the kind of baseline functionality in the product and instead kind of say we can actually experiment in a pretty lightweight way in terms of outside of the product help content guidance best practices things like that but i think that is going to be a constant tension because again the, the types of decisions that you enact and the types of questions you're digging into are really different depending on whether you're a I don't know, massive hotel chain compared to a quick service restaurant compared to a software, you know, B2B SaaS company, right? And and the personas and the questions are so different. Right. So that's a tension that I think is really interesting when you think about the decision making workflow and who those stakeholders are and is kind of how specialized or specific do we want to get? And that's both in, you know, the research who we're thinking about as our target customers and target personas also in how we evolve the product, but also in how we kind of serve them outside of the product. So that's an interesting tension. And and like I said, my intuition here is to stay general to start and kind of see where we get pulled by the market. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I can understand that. And I, I would, you know, it gets into marketing and positioning, right? Who are we? Who are we helping? And are we speaking their lingo? Because the hotel chain and the Burger Kings of the world don't probably have the same lingo and what they're trying to do. And this is all about operations and this is all about customer experience, which is not about efficient burger shipping, you know, like, (laughs) you know, the hotel guests came here to spend time at the hotel. That is actually the goal is to (laughs) relax here, not to leave, you know? (laughs) So the lingo, you know, the way we talk to them is different and and it could sound probably to the tooling level too, with what you're talking about. So, so I'll be curious to hear how you guys come out of the, the, the end of that, you know? How can people follow you and and anything coming up in your world you want to share any events or speaking or books or anything like that that you want to mention? Yeah, absolutely. So um, follow me on on LinkedIn or uh, feel free to just yeah shoot me a message there and I'm always happy to connect, especially if anything that we talked about today. I mean, I this is the type of stuff I love talking about. This intersection of data driven decision making and designing for that and thinking about all of the fun challenges and questions that that come with that. Uh, So yeah, would absolutely always welcome people reaching out on on LinkedIn, connecting there. In terms of events, we've got a a lot of of really exciting events actually coming up with Sisu. Depending on on when this airs, we maybe before or after, but we've got a future data conference on October 13th that we're really excited about. And we'll have a, a number of different events and, and announcements coming up from Sisu. So I'd also encourage people to follow Sisu on LinkedIn, uh, check out check out our website, sisudata.com. And uh, just really appreciate, Brian, you having me here. This is a really fun conversation. So thank you so much. All right. Excellent. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag experiencing data. 
To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.